Our scripture text this evening is Exodus chapter 5, so I invite you to turn to Exodus 5. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're also going to read the first verse of chapter 6. So let us stand for the reading of God's holy word this evening. Let us hear that word now. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people back from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people." But he said, you are idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is the very word of God. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Let us now go to our God in prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that uh, for this time to be in your word, we know that to read your word, to hear it, is a great privilege. And so give us uh, willing and eager ears to hear uh, that we might grow from our time together. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we continue in the book of Exodus this evening, brothers and sisters, and we come to the first confrontation between Pharaoh and Moses. And what happens in this passage is exactly what God said would happen. And yet Moses seems surprised that things are not going so quickly or as well as people want it to go. And that is what we're going to study this evening, is this encounter and the results of it in the life of God's people and how they responded to the challenge. Before we do that, though, let's remind ourselves of what we are learning about in the book of Exodus as a whole. Uh, We have said many times that Exodus is a recounting of the grand story of redemption. It is a, a paradigm, a picture of God's redemption of his people in history. We might even consider Exodus a picture book of redemption. And by picture book, of course, I don't mean something that isn't true, some sort of fictional children's picture book. But what I mean, rather, is that it shows us visually, concretely, and historically how God redeems his people. It gives us stories and pictures and events to understand the way that God works. And we know that Exodus is a paradigm because throughout the rest of the Bible, the Exodus story is recounted and different parts of it are applied by the prophets. You'll find the prophets are constantly using Exodus terminology and speaking about the great Exodus that is yet to come for God's people, which is then fulfilled in Christ. And so we need to have a sense of excitement as we read the book of Exodus that we are learning about the ways of God that apply to us as well. So Exodus is very helpful. Not only does it show us the way of God's redemption, it also is a book that shows us the way of grateful obedience. Once we come to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law and the tabernacle, we're going to see how grateful obedience and worship result from God's redemption. So this is a very valuable book for us. Now, in our passage tonight, I think we find some familiar spiritual realities illustrated for us in these dialogues and these interactions, particularly realities about human beings that we are familiar with. We might see them in others. We might see them in ourselves. And I want to look at three things in relation to the human beings in this passage, and then we'll look at God first or last of all in the very last part of our message. Now, there's three things I want to look at. First, we're going to see the folly of unbelief and rebellion on the part of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's unbelief, his refusal to listen to God. That's one thing that we can learn about. Secondly, we also see the weak and flimsy faith of God's people. When at the first sign of hardship, they get mad and frustrated and complain. And they conclude that the plan has failed and this is not going to go well. I think we're familiar with this kind of mindset. The third is we're going to also see the impatience of Moses, who in response to the criticism of the Hebrews, he pleads for God to go faster and to get this thing done. And he questions whether this whole thing is really going to work out. And we can relate to this as well, I think. 
Now, all of these points deal with mankind in the passage. They're a diagnosis of the wrongheadedness and the faithlessness of human beings. But we do want to remember that all of this is going back to what God is going to do. We have all these problems that people are dealing with, but it all resolves in chapter 6, verse 1. God says, in response, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. With a strong hand, he will drive them out. He says, you just wait. Right now, he's stubborn and he's refusing, but it's not going to be that way. It's going to change. I'm going to show my redemption if you will wait. So let's look here at verses 1 through 2 once again. This first encounter, Pharaoh uh, is encou- uh, is, has this interview with Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron, they deliver the message. They say it, thus says the Lord, God of Israel. This is not just their word, this is God's word. And what did God say to Pharaoh? Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. This reminds us of a theme in Exodus that I've already mentioned, that redemption, the redemption of God's people is unto their worship. God delivers his people, why? So that they will worship the Lord. He's going to send them out into the wilderness to praise him, to give thanks to him, to worship him. That is what God does. He delivers his people to proclaim his praises. It's no different for us, of course, right? We, we are set free from sin. We are redeemed from uh, the, the clutches of Satan. And we are made to be, as 1 Peter 2 says, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we may proclaim the praises of our God and show forth his excellencies to this world. So that's still the case throughout the Bible here. And that is what the message is. Now, how does Pharaoh respond? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Who is this God that you say is telling me to do something? Now, if you're Pharaoh, what are you thinking about this? You're thinking, okay, these are the slaves. These are our slaves. We've had them for centuries serving us. And they have the audacity to come in and tell me that their God is commanding me to do something. That's not much of a God that's let his people languish in slavery for centuries. Who is this God? I'm not impressed by the Hebrews' God. What, What kind of God would let his people languish like that? It's possible that Pharaoh thought that way. But in time, from Exodus chapter 5 until we get to Exodus 14, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are going to know who this God is by the end. They don't know who this God is. They don't know who Yahweh is at this point, but they will know by the end. And that was, of course, God's very purpose. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why did this continue on after plague, after plague, after plague? God tells us. He says that the world, that the the Egyptians, that you, my people, may know that I am the Lord. That was his purpose. We come to Exodus 14, verses 24 through 25. This is in the great Red Sea moment. And listen to what the Egyptians say about God. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They they came to know that this God is real. This is the purpose of God's judgments in history often is that God may reveal his glory, that he may reveal who he is, that people would know 
that he is the true and living God. But Pharaoh is your average, ordinary unbeliever. He rejects God's word from the outset. He has no interest in what God has to say. In verse 9, Pharaoh calls God's word false words or vain words in some translations. He says that these words that Moses and Aaron are banding about, it's falsehood. Ignore it. Get back to work. Pharaoh doesn't even attempt to argue against Moses and Aaron's claims. They're just irrelevant to him. He doesn't even care to have an argument about which God is stronger and whether we should listen to God's word or listen to man's word. There's no contrast like that at all. He just says, this is irrelevant. Get back to your work. I I have no interest in this message from your God. And this is the, the way in which unbelievers respond to God's word. They, they hear it and they can immediately at the outset just reject it completely. I was reading Richard Dawkins' book, as I mentioned this morning uh, recently, and he has a chapter on scripture. So I was like, well, what is he going to do with this? How does he interact with it? Well, he, he finds about 10 to 15 examples that he finds objectionable over about three or four pages and then says, well, we can just toss that aside. Who would believe any such thing? There's no argument here for the existence of God, so I'm not even going to interact with Scripture again. And I thought, that's highly dismissive. doesn't even attempt to really deal with the issues with any sort of honesty or any sort of real interest, any sort of concern. It is totally irrelevant to him. And so it is for many when they hear God's word, as Pharaoh did. It's irrelevant to them because they, because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 says. They want to have nothing to do with the word of God. But Pharaoh, even though we wouldn't say that he seemed to convert or repent, nevertheless, Pharaoh will come to know that the God of the Hebrews is a very, very powerful God. That will come in time. Now, as a consequence of Moses and Aaron's command, Pharaoh not only says no, but he adds to the difficulty of the Hebrews by saying, you're going to keep making bricks, but you're going to do it without us giving you straw. And apparently the arrangement must have been that they had a daily quota of bricks and there were supplies given. Yes, they were slaves, but Pharaoh and the Egyptians would provide supplies. They'd say, here's our storehouses, here's the straw, pull it out, you can make bricks with this. That will be efficient and effective. But Pharaoh wants to make a point. He wants to make sure that this kind of rebellious uprising of the Hebrews is stopped. And so he says, we're going to make this really difficult for them. And so in verses 6 through 8, it says, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. So what was the effect of this? Well, making bricks without straw in this context was not necessarily impossible, but it was very difficult to make these these bricks out without straw would be to lose that, uh, that ingredient that would cause them to harden well in the sun and to be very durable. But without the, that straw, these bricks were going to be flimsy, they'd fall apart, it'd be very difficult to get the work done with any sort of efficiency or with any sort of durability. Think about like rebar and concrete. And kids, sometimes you've seen this, if, if concrete is laid, they'll put these these metal bars inside the concrete and the concrete's poured on top of it and those rebars make that concrete really strong. It was the same way with the straw as well. They really needed the straw to make bricks that had durability. But this was a massive demand to make. They didn't have access to straw because the Egyptians had withheld it from them and they said, 
you go find your own straw. But there wasn't any straw really to be found. And so what did they look for instead? What did they find instead? Just stubble. That's what verse 12 says. The people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And what is stubble? Well, it's, it's after you've cut that, that stalk of grain, and there's just that little piece between the, the ground and the little stubble that was left from where you cut it. And you can't really do much with that. It's not very useful for making bricks. It's just this tiny little stubble. It's often called chaff. It's just thrown away and burned up. It's... Now imagine you're a Hebrew slave. Moses and Aaron have come to you in the weeks before. They've told you that the God of uh, Israel has appeared to them and he has promised to redeem you and, and you have seen the miracles and then you hear about that, that encounter. You think, okay, Moses and Aaron are going to Pharaoh. We're going to be free tomorrow. Maybe they thought that. And instead, what you learn is that now your job just got more difficult. You have this backbreaking labor in the hot sun. You cannot really accomplish what has been laid upon you, and you are at physical threat of violence for failing to do your work. What might you be thinking or feeling at this point about Moses and Aaron and about the God and what he said? You might be tempted to faithlessness or doubt. You might be wondering, God said he would deliver us with a mighty hand, but now our work just got harder and we're not going anywhere. And that's what the Hebrew uh, foremen or officers uh, thought. They come to Moses and Aaron, they give him a very stinging rebuke in Exodus 5 verse 20. As they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them and they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge Because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so they're not thinking about what God's purposes are here. They just look at it as a failure of Moses and Aaron's part. Sometimes leaders have to deal with this. Like if something bad goes happen, sometimes it's like, well, it's just whoever was leading, it's their fault. Uh, and that's, that's the simple conclusion. And they just, they blast Moses and Aaron for what happened and uh, Pharaoh's refusal. And what are these officers of the Hebrews thinking? What is their mindset right now? It's, like, it's as if they've concluded that the plan has failed. Everything is going wrong. Everything is getting worse. You see how long their faith lasted. It wasn't very strong. The elders of Israel in the previous chapter, they had bowed and worshipped the Lord and they had believed the miraculous signs. I'm sure they were excited about what was going to take place. But at the first sign of trouble, they get depressed and angry with Moses and Aaron. They even expect just to be killed by the Egyptians who will punish them severely for not meeting their quota. Now, what I see here, brothers and sisters, is something about us. Potentially something about us and, and what happens with these officers of the Hebrews. This is what we can do. At the very first sign of trouble, we can run into some challenge, some trial, some difficulty, and we've prayed for a particular outcome, but then there's like trouble that happens, and we think, we we, we throw up our hands and we say, well, that didn't do anything. God didn't help me. This is all a big mess and a big failure. Sometimes we conclude, we say, that prayer won't be answered. Look at what just happened. The prayer didn't get answered. It didn't work out. God did not help us. We're prone to such doubting thoughts, aren't we? 
It's evidence of our small faith when we do so. At the very first sign of trouble, we think, God did not come through. And we need to remind ourselves, well, God did not come through, it seems to us, yet, or perhaps in the way that you expected. Maybe he has other ways in which he is going to fulfill that prayer, just as our brother prayed earlier. Uh, Douglas Stewart, he was commenting on this passage. He, He had some wise comments for us here. He said, God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. And his idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. And that last comment I thought was funny because I'm wondering, do we ever think, that, do we ever anticipate a certain level of hardship for something to take place? It's, he says, we need to go, our idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. I wonder if we ever think that way. Uh, it seems like we can quickly conclude that this is too much. And there's some wisdom in that statement that it's the, co- coinciden- the coincidence or the bringing together of our expectations in God's timing. This is where our faith gets into trouble. God has his timing. We have our timing. It's always a lot faster and a lot easier and a lot more trouble-free than the way God determines to do it. And these, these uh, Hebrew officers, they have the wrong assumptions, don't they? they? They seem to assume, if God promised to deliver us, then one meeting with Pharaoh and we're going to be on our way. No problems, no trials, no fearful challenges, no faith tests, no dramatic Red Sea moments. We're just going to walk out of here problem-free. But you see, brothers and sisters, God's deliverances, as we so often see them in Scripture, don't work that way. God's deliverances are usually far more dramatic and reveal his glory and test our faith. We would like to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease rather than fight spiritual battles. We would rather things go really, really quick than have to wait on God and have to exercise faith and have to struggle through hardship. Now, if these officers had had stronger faith they, they, and had learned to wait on God, they could have said something like, Moses and Aaron, that was a hard meeting, but we're trusting that God will be true to his word, and soon this additional burden will be removed from us, and God will redeem us. Like, they could have said that. They didn't say that. And I would ask us, brothers and sisters, how do you respond to the first sign of trouble? or maybe the 50th sign of trouble. It depends on the trial that we're talking about. But as the the troubles occur, how does your faith respond? How do you run into that? Do you become the Hebrew officers and try to find somebody to blame and some human problem that you can paste it on? Do you, how do you respond to these things? Is God's promise still in the midst of the trouble, still the absolute, infallible, controlling factor in your thinking? Is that what guides you through the signs of trouble, is God's promises, God's promises, God's promises? Remember, friends, that God delivers in his own way and on his own timetable. Trust him for the promise, but do not assume that you know how the answer to prayer must play out. And when? And remember that when it comes to God's redemption, his highest aim in our redemption is not our comfort and ease. Granted, we have the promise of eternal joy and glory and 
freedom from sorrow, that's going to come. But his aim in our redemption is not to make us as comfortable and as easy along the way as possible. That doesn't seem to be the pattern of Scripture. But his aim is his glory and our ultimate good. We are not brought to glory on a cruise ship, but on a battleship. Very different expectations of what take place on those two ships. John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, you'll notice it does not contain a series of 12 different stops at beautiful green arbors, does it? There was one arbor, as I recall, in Pilgrim's Progress. It's actually where he falls asleep. And what, What's contained in Pilgrim's Progress wisely? Well, you have things like the Slough of Despond, the Hill Difficulty, Doubting Castle, Vanity Fair, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, the Enchanted Ground. Like, these all, what, what's, what's in common with all these? They all involve difficulty or trial or temptation or risk. They all involve that, and that is wise that Bunyan wrote the book in that way. It would be highly unrelatable if he had written a book about the 12 stops of the 12 green arbors. That wouldn't make any sense to us at all. Nobody would really like the book because it would be so unrelatable to our Christian experience. So that's the problem with the foremen here. They, they seem to think that the whole plan has gotten botched by Moses and Aaron's bad speech or bad leadership, and that's just not the case at all. God is going to act. God has a bigger purpose here than the Israelites' timetable. So what is, how does Moses respond? We've looked at the officers of the Hebrews and how they had this, this weak faith. How does Moses respond? Well, it does seem to shake Moses here. It affects him. Now, thankfully, he does turn to God in prayer. He, he, he seeks God. He prays something. It's not the, not, it's not the most faith-filled prayer, but it's, uh, it's a prayer nonetheless. What does he say? Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. It's not a very faith-filled prayer, as I said, because Moses goes back to his doubts. You remember what he doubted about in Exodus chapter 4. Remember, he said, Lord, I don't think I'm the right guy. You need to send someone else. I'm not a good speaker. It's a very poor choice. Choose somebody else, Lord. And so he thinks that this bad encounter is an excuse. He says, Lord, see, I'm not a good speaker. You chose the wrong guy. Why is it that you've sent me here? But Moses and the foremen of Israel, they're not viewing things rightly. They're, all, they're viewing everything on this human standpoint. It's, just, it's always just this horizontal human standpoint. And Moses had been told that this would happen. Chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. What did God tell Moses was going to happen? He said, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. So why is he, why is he surprised? Not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So Moses should have expected this. But I think what probably rattled him, as tends to rattle us, is when people come along and they, they criticize and they have a problem. There's some blame, blame going on. And you, you can freak out in response. And you, you immediately wonder whether this is going to work out the right way. And so Moses' fears and doubts seem to take over rather than remembering God's bigger plan here. And he even says, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has not, you have not delivered your people. It's like, oh, come on, Moses, it's just one interview. Can you have a little more patience here uh, to wait on God? This is what we can do as well. 
we, we, we come to the, the moment of desire for deliverance, or we've prayed for something, or something very difficult happens, and we think, why have you not come through, Lord, yet? Why have you not acted yet? But this is where we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that it is of the essence of faith to wait on God. Faith involves waiting, and waiting involves time and patience. It means that we must be patient in our faith expectations. Matthew Henry has some wisdom for us on this. He says, What strange steps God sometimes takes in delivering his people. He often brings them to the utmost straits when he is just ready to appear for them. The lowest ebbs go before the highest tides, and very cloudy mornings commonly introduce the fairest days. I like that last picture because we're familiar with this in Colorado. You can have this kind of cloudy morning and the sun breaks through. This is what we often are feeling. We're in the cloudy morning. We're thinking, when's the sun going to come out? When is God going to show his goodness? And then it comes, sometimes dramatically, sometimes in a surprising way. Another passage that reinforces this is Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. This is in Moses' final words to Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 36, it says, The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when, here's the important part, when, when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. So it says the Lord's going to have compassion, but when? When when their power is gone, when they're at the lowest point, is sometimes how God works. And so it's important that we get used to the ways of our God, uh, the ways that he works, and let us take heart by God's promises. These promises are sufficient to strengthen us until the time of deliverance, to strengthen us until the answer to prayer comes. And so that's what God reinforces to Moses. After all the complaints and the concerns and the doubts, the Lord just reiterates what he had already said in chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God doesn't say anything new here. He just requotes, as it were, chapter 3. It's, it's as if Moses just needed to hear what had already been said, and so it is for us as well, right? We, we start freaking out, and, and somebody has to grab us and say, This is what God said. Does that verse you memorized last week? Here's what it said. We, we, we sometimes have to be that straightforward with one another, lest we fall into despair. And so, brothers and sisters, I have a very simple application for us tonight. Let us be patient and believe God. Let us be patient and believe God. Let us not complain about God's plan or God's timing. Let us not complain about the challenges we face along the way as we wait upon the Lord. God will show his power in due time. The Lord will surely fulfill his promise. And it is only for us to wait and pray and then wait longer if needed. And then when the fulfillment comes, we will glorify our God for what he has done. As Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us pray that we would learn to wait patiently for our God and to hold fast to his promises, knowing that these things will sustain us as we wait.
men. Let us pray. Our God, we praise you for you are the great redeemer of your people. And we know that you have given us thousands of promises in your word that sustain us through difficulty. And when we face difficulty, we we ask, Lord, that you would grow us in faith, that we would not be those that complain, those that are impatient, those that are frustrated, those that blame others, but that we would wait upon you. And so we ask, O God, that you would do this work within our hearts, for we, we need your help so that we might respond in faith. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.